Chapter Nine of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume One, by Giacomo Casanova. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume One: The Venetian Years, by Giacomo Casanova, Episode Two: Cleric in Naples, Chapter Nine, Part One. I had no difficulty in answering the various questions which Dr. Gennaro addressed me, but I was surprised and even displeased at the constant peals of laughter with which he received my answers. The piteous description of miserable Calabria, and the picture of the sad situation of the Bishop of Martorano, appeared to me more likely to call forth tears than to excite hilarity, and, suspecting that some mystification was being played upon me, I was very near getting angry when, becoming more composed, he told me with feeling that I must kindly excuse him, that his laughter was a disease which seemed to be endemic in his family, for one of his uncles died of it. What? I exclaimed. Died of laughing? Yes, this disease, which was not known to Hippocrates, is called Liflati. What do you mean? Does an hypochondriac affection, which causes sadness and lowness in all those who suffer from it, render you cheerful? Yes, because most likely my flatti, instead of influencing the hypochondrium, affects my spleen, which my physician asserts to be the organ of laughter. It is quite a discovery. You are mistaken. It is a very ancient notion, and it is the only function which is ascribed to the spleen in our animal organization. Well, we must discuss the matter at length, for I hope you will remain with us a few weeks. I wish I could, but I must leave Naples tomorrow or the day after. Have you got any money? I rely upon the sixty ducats you have to give me. At these words, his peals of laughter began again, and as he could see that I was annoyed, he said, I am amused at the idea that I can keep you here as long as I like. But be good enough to see my son. He writes pretty verses enough. And truly his son, although only fourteen, was already a great poet. A servant took me to the apartment of the young man, whom I found possessed of a pleasing countenance and engaging manners. He gave me a polite welcome, and begged to be excused if he could not attend to me altogether for the present, as he had to finish a song which he was composing for a relative of the Duchess de Rovino, who was taking the veil at the convent of St. Clair, and the printer was waiting for the manuscript. I told him that his excuse was a very good one, and I offered to assist him. He then read his song, and I found it so full of enthusiasm, and so truly in the style of Guidi, that I advised him to call it an ode but as I had praised all the truly beautiful passages, I thought I could venture to point out the weak ones, and I replaced them by verses of my own composition. He was delighted, and thanked me warmly, inquiring whether I was Apollo. As he was writing his ode, I composed a sonnet on the same subject, and, expressing his admiration for it, he begged me to sign it, and to allow him to send it with his poetry. While I was correcting and recopying my manuscript, he went to his father to find out who I was, which made the old man laugh until supper-time. In the evening I had the pleasure of seeing that my bed had been prepared in the young men's chamber. Dr. Gennaro's family was composed of this son, and of a daughter unfortunately very plain, and of his wife, and of two elderly devout sisters. Amongst the guests at the supper-table I met several literary men, and the Marquis Galliani, who was at that time annotating Vitruvius. He had a brother, an abbe, whose acquaintance I made twenty years after, in Paris, when he was secretary of embassy to Count Cantilana, 
The next day, at supper, I was presented to the celebrated Genovesi. I had already sent him the letter of the Archbishop of Cosenza. He spoke to me of Apostolo Zeno and of the Abbe Conti. He remarked that it was considered a very venial sin for regular priests to say two masses in one day for the sake of earning two carlini more, but that for the same sin a secular priest would deserve to be burnt at the stake. The nun took the veil on the following day, and Gennaro's ode and my sonnet had the greatest success. A Neapolitan gentleman, whose name was the same as mine, expressed a wish to know me, and, hearing that I resided at the doctor's, he called to congratulate him on the occasion of his feast day, which happened to fall on the day following the ceremony at St. Clair. Don Antonio Casanova, informing me of his name, inquired whether my family was originally from Venice. I am, sir, I answered modestly, the great-grandson of the unfortunate Marco Antonio Casanova, secretary to Cardinal Pompeo Colonna, who died of the plague in Rome in the year 1528, under the pontificate of Clement Seven. The words were scarcely out of my lips when he embraced me, calling me his cousin, but we all thought that Dr. Gennaro would actually die with laughter, for it seemed impossible to laugh so immoderately with risk of life. Madame Gennaro was very angry and told my newly found cousin that he might have avoided enacting such a scene before her husband, knowing his disease, but he answered that he never thought the circumstance likely to provoke mirth. I said nothing, for, in reality, I felt that the recognition was very comic. Our poor laughter, having recovered his composure, Casanova, who had remained very serious, invited me to dinner for the next day with my young friend Paul Gennaro, who had already become my alter ego. When we called at his house, my worthy cousin showed me his family tree, beginning with a Don Francisco, brother of Don Juan. In my pedigree, which I knew by heart, Don Juan, my direct ancestor, was a posthumous child. It was possible that there might have been a brother of Marco Antonio's, but when he heard that my genealogy began with Don Francisco from Aragon, who had lived in the fourteenth century, and that consequently all the pedigree of the illustrious house of the Casanovas of Zaragoza belonged to him, his joy knew no bounds. He did not know what to do to convince me that the same blood was flowing in his veins and in mine. He expressed some curiosity to know what lucky accident had brought me to Naples. I told him that, having embraced the ecclesiastical profession, I was going to Rome to seek my fortune. He then presented me to his family, and I thought that I could read on the countenance of my cousin, his dearly beloved wife, that she was not much pleased with the newly found relationship, but his pretty daughter and a still prettier niece of his might very easily have given me faith in the doctrine that blood is thicker than water, however fabulous it may be. After dinner, Don Antonio informed me that the Duchess de Bovino had expressed a wish to know the Abbe Casanova, who had written the sonnet in honor of her relative, and that he would be very happy to introduce me to her as his own cousin. As we were alone at that moment, I begged he would not insist on presenting me, as I was only provided with traveling suits and had to be careful of my purse so as not to arrive in Rome without money. Delighted at my confidence and approving my economy, he said, I am rich and you must not scruple to come with me to my tailor and he accompanied his offer with an assurance that the circumstance would not be known to any one, and that he would feel deeply mortified if I denied him the pleasure of serving me. I shook him warmly by the hand, and answered that I was ready to do anything he pleased. We went to a tailor who took my measure, and who brought me on the following day everything necessary to the toilet of the most elegant abbey. Don Antonio called on me, and remained to dine with Don Gennaro, 
after which he took me and my friend Paul to the Duchess. This lady, according to the Neapolitan fashion, called me thou in her very first compliment of welcome. Her daughter, then only ten or twelve years old, and a few years later became Duchess de Matalona. The Duchess presented me with a snuff-box in pale tortoiseshell, with arabesque and crustaceans and gold, and she invited us to dine with her on the morrow, promising to take us after dinner to the convent of St. Clair to pay a visit to the new nun. As we came out of the palace of the Duchess, I left my friends and went alone to Panagiotti's to claim the barrel of muscatel wine. The manager was kind enough to have the barrel divided into two smaller casks of equal capacity, and I sent one to Don Antonio and the other to Don Gennaro. As I was leaving the shop, I met the worthy Panagiotti, who was glad to see me. Was I to blush at the sight of the good man I had at first deceived? No, for in his opinion I had acted very nobly towards him. Don Gennaro, as I returned home, managed to thank me for my handsome present without laughing, and the next day Don Antonio, to make up for the muscatel wine I had sent him, offered me a gold-headed cane worth at least fifteen ounces, and his tailor brought me a travelling suit and a blue great coat with the buttonholes and gold lace. I therefore found myself splendidly equipped. At the Duchess de Bovino's dinner I made the acquaintance of the wisest and most learned man in Naples, the illustrious Don Lelio Carafa, who belonged to the ducal family of Matalona, and whom King Carlos honored with the title of friend. I spent two delightful hours in the convent parlor, coping successfully with the curiosity of all the nuns who were pressing against the grating. Had destiny allowed me to remain in Naples, my fortune would have been made. But, although I had no fixed plan, the voice of fate summoned me to Rome, and therefore I resisted all the entreaties of my cousin Antonio to accept the honorable position of tutor in several houses of the highest order. Don Antonio gave a splendid dinner in my honor, but he was annoyed and angry because he saw that his wife looked daggers at her new cousin. I thought that, more than once, she cast a glance at my new costume, and then whispered to the guest next to her. Very likely she knew what had taken place. There are some positions in life to which I could never be reconciled. If, in the most brilliant circle, there is one person who affects to stare at me, I lose all presence of mind. Self-dignity feels outraged. My wit dies away, and I play the part of adult. It is a weakness on my part, but a weakness I cannot overcome. Don Lelio Carafa offered me a very liberal salary if I would undertake the education of his nephew, the Duke de Matalona, then ten years of age. I expressed my gratitude, and begged him to be my true benefactor in a different manner, namely by giving me a few good letters of introduction for Rome, a favor which he granted at once. He gave me one for Cardinal Acquaviva, and another for Father Giorgi. I found out that the interest felt towards me by my friends had induced them to obtain for me the honor of kissing the hand of Her Majesty the Queen, and I hastened my preparations to leave Naples, for the Queen would certainly have asked me some questions, and I could not have avoided telling her that I had just left Martorano and the poor bishop whom she had sent there. The Queen likewise knew my mother. She would very likely have alluded to my mother's profession in Dresden. It would have mortified Don Antonio, and my pedigree would have been covered with ridicule. I knew the force of prejudice. I should have been ruined, and I felt I should do well to withdraw in good time. As I took leave of him, Don Antonio presented me with a fine gold watch, and gave me a letter for Don Gaspar Vivaldi, whom he called his best friend. Don Gennaro paid me the sixty ducats, and his son, swearing eternal friendship, 
asked me to write to him. They all accompanied me to the coach, blending their tears with mine, and loading me with good wishes and blessings. From my landing in Chiozza up to my arrival in Naples, fortune had seemed bent upon frowning on me. In Naples it began to shew itself less adverse, and on my return to that city it entirely smiled upon me. Naples has always been a fortunate place for me, as the reader of my memoirs will discover. My readers must not forget that in Pochi I was on the point of disgracing myself, and there is no remedy against the degradation of the mind, for nothing can restore it to its former standard. It is a case of disheartening atony for which there is no possible cure. I was not ungrateful to the good bishop of Martorano, for if he had unwittingly injured me by summoning me to his diocese, I felt that to his letter from Mr. Naro I was indebted for all the good fortune which had just befallen me. I wrote to him from Rome. I was wholly engaged in drying my tears as we were driving through the beautiful street of Toledo, and it was only after we had left Naples that I could find time to examine the countenance of my traveling companions. Next to me I saw a man of from forty to fifty, with a pleasing face and a lively air, but opposite to me, Two charming faces delighted my eyes. They belonged to two ladies, young and pretty, very well dressed, with a look of candor and modesty. This discovery was most agreeable, but I felt sad and I wanted calm and silence. We reached Avesa without one word being exchanged, and as the Vetturino stopped there only to water his mules, we did not get out of the coach. From Avesa to Capua, my companions conversed almost without interruption, and, wonderful to relate, I did not open my lips once. I was amused by the Neapolitan jargon of the gentlemen, and by the pretty accent of the ladies, who were evidently Romans. It was a most wonderful feat for me to remain five hours before two charming women, without addressing one word to them, without paying them one compliment. At Capua, where we were to spend the night, we put up at an inn, and we were shown into a room with two beds, a very usual thing in Italy. The Neapolitan, addressing himself to me, said, Am I to have the honor of sleeping with the reverend gentleman? I answered in a very serious tone that it was for him to choose or to arrange it otherwise if he liked. The answer made the two ladies smile, particularly the one whom I preferred, and it seemed to me a good omen. We were five at supper, for it is usual for the Vitturino to supply his travelers with their meals, unless some private agreement is made otherwise, and to sit down at table with them. In the desultory talk which went on during the supper, I found in my traveling companions decorum, propriety, wit, and the manners of persons accustomed to good society. I became curious to know who they were, and going down with the driver after supper, I asked him. The gentleman, he told me, is an advocate, and one of the ladies is his wife, but I do not know which of the two. I went back to our room, and I was polite enough to go to bed first in order to make it easier for the ladies to undress themselves with freedom. I likewise got up first in the morning, left the room, and only returned when I was called for breakfast. The coffee was delicious. I praised it highly, and the lady, the one who was my favorite, promised that I should have the same every morning during our journey. The barber came in after breakfast, the advocate was shaved, and the barber offered me his services, which I declined, but the rogue declared that it was slovenly to wear one's beard. When we had resumed our seats in the coach, the advocate made some remark upon the impudence of barbers in general. But we ought to decide first, said the lady, whether or not it is slovenly to go bearded. Of course it is, said the advocate. 
Beard is nothing but a dirty excrescence. You may think so, I answered. But everybody does not share your opinion. Do we consider as a dirty excrescence the hair of which we take so much care, and which is of the same nature as the beard? Far from it. We admire the length and the beauty of the hair. Then, remarked the lady, the barber is a fool. But after all, I asked, have I any beard? I thought you had, she answered. In that case, I will begin to shave as soon as I reach Rome, for this is the first time that I have been convicted of having a beard. My dear wife, exclaimed the advocate, you should have held your tongue. Perhaps the reverend abbe is going to Rome with the intention of becoming a Capuchin friar. The pleasantry made me laugh, but, unwilling that he should have the last word, I answered that he had guessed rightly, that such had been my intention, but that I had entirely altered my mind since I had seen his wife. Oh, you are wrong, said the joyous Neapolitan, for my wife is very fond of capuchins, and if you wish to please her, you had better follow your original vocation. Our conversation continued in the same tone of pleasantry, and the day passed off in an agreeable manner. In the evening we had a very poor supper at Garrelin, but we made up for it by cheerfulness and witty conversation. My dawning inclination for the advocate's wife borrowed strength from the affectionate manner she displayed towards me. The next day she asked me, after we had resumed our journey, whether I intended to make a long stay in Rome before returning to Venice. I answered that, having no acquaintances in Rome, I was afraid my life there might be very dull. Strangers are liked in Rome, she said. I feel certain that you will be pleased with your residence in that city. May I hope, madam, that you will allow me to pay you my respects? We shall be honored by your calling on us, said the advocate. My eyes were fixed upon his charming wife. She blushed, but I did not appear to notice it. I kept up the conversation, and the day passed as pleasantly as the previous one. We stopped at Terracina, where they gave us a room with three beds, two single beds, and a larger one between the two others. It was natural that the two sisters should take the large bed. They did so, and undressed themselves while the advocate and I went on talking at the table, with our backs turned to them. As soon as they had gone to rest, the advocate took the bed on which he found his nightcap, and I the other, which was only about one foot distant from the large bed. I remarked that the lady by whom I was captivated was on the side nearest my couch, and, without much vanity, I could suppose that it was not owing only to chance. I put the light out and laid down, revolving in my mind a project which I could not abandon and yet durst not execute. In vain did I court sleep. A very faint light enabled me to perceive the bed in which the pretty woman was lying, and my eyes would, in spite of myself, remain open. It would be difficult to guess what I might have done at last. I had already fought a hard battle with myself for more than an hour. When I saw her rise, get out of her bed, and go and lay herself down near her husband, who, most likely, did not wake up, and continued to sleep in peace, for I did not hear any noise. Vexed disgusted i tried to compose myself to sleep and i woke only at daybreak seeing the beautiful wandering star in her own bed i got up dressed myself in haste and went out leaving all my companions fast asleep i returned to the inn only at the time fixed for our departure and i found the advocate and the two ladies already in the coach waiting for me the lady complained in a very obliging manner of my not having cared for her coffee I pleaded as an excuse a desire for an early walk, and I took care not to honor her even with a look. I feigned to be suffering from the toothache, and remained in my corner, dull and silent. At Piperno she managed to whisper to me that my toothache was all sham, 
I was pleased with the reproach because it heralded an explanation which I craved for, in spite of my vexation. I was morose and silent until we reached Serinoneta, where we were to pass the night. We arrived early, and the weather being fine, the lady said that she could enjoy a walk, and asked me politely to offer her my arm. I did so, for it would have been rude to refuse. Besides, I had had enough of my sulking fit. An explanation could alone bring matters back to their original standing, but I did not know how to force it upon the lady. Her husband followed us at some distance with the sister. When we were far enough in advance, I ventured to ask her why she had supposed my toothache to have been feigned. I am very candid, she said. It is because the difference in your manner was so marked, and because you were so careful to avoid looking at me through the whole day. A toothache would not have prevented you from being polite, and therefore I thought it had been feigned for some purpose. But I am certain that not one of us can possibly have given you any grounds for such a rapid change in your manner. Yet something must have caused the change, and you, madam, are only half sincere. You are mistaken, sir. I am entirely sincere. If I have given you any motive for anger, I am and must remain ignorant of it. Be good enough to tell me what I have done. Nothing, for I have no right to complain. Yes, you have. You have a right. The same that I have myself, the right which good society grants to every one of its members. Speak, and show yourself as sincere as I am. You are certainly bound not to know, or to pretend not to know the real cause, but you must acknowledge that my duty is to remain silent. Very well. Now it is all over. But your duty bids you to conceal the cause of your bad humor. It also bids you not to show it. Delicacy sometimes enforces upon a polite gentleman the necessity of concealing certain feelings which might implicate either himself or others. It is a restraint for the mind, I confess, but it has some advantage when its effect is to render more amiable the man who forces himself to accept that restraint. Her close argument made me blush for shame, and carrying her beautiful hand to my lips, I confessed myself in the wrong. You would see me at your feet, I exclaimed, in token of my repentance, were I not afraid of injuring you. Do not let us allude to the matter any more, she answered. And pleased with my repentance, she gave me a look so excessive of forgiveness that, without being afraid of augmenting my guilt, I took my lips off her hand, and I raised them to her half-open, smiling mouth. Intoxicated with rapture, I passed so rapidly from a state of sadness to one of overwhelming cheerfulness, that during our supper the advocate enjoyed a thousand jokes upon my toothache, so quickly cured by the simple remedy of a walk. On the following day we dined at Velletri and slept in Marino, where, although the town was full of troops, we had two small rooms and a good supper. I could not have been on better terms with my charming Roman, for, although I had received but a rapid proof of our regard, it had been such a true one, such a tender one. In the coach our eyes could not say much. But I was opposite to her, and our feet spoke a very eloquent language. The advocate had told me that he was going to Rome on some ecclesiastical business, and that he intended to reside in the house of mother-in-law, whom his wife had not seen since her marriage two years ago, and her sister hoped to remain in Rome, where she expected to marry a clerk at the Spirito Santo Bank. He gave me their address, with a pressing invitation to call upon them, and I promised to devote all my spare time to them. We were enjoying our dessert when my beautiful lady love, admiring my snuff-box, told her husband that she wished she had one like it. I will buy you one, dear. Then buy mine, I said. I will let you have it for twenty ounces. 
and you can give me a note of hand payable to bearer in payment. I owe that amount to an Englishman, and I will give it him to redeem my debt. Your snuff-box, my dear Abby, is worth twenty ounces, but I cannot buy it unless you agree to receive payment in cash. I should be delighted to see it in my wife's possession, and she would keep it as a remembrance of you. His wife, thinking that I would not accept his offer, said that she had no objection to give me the note of hand. But, exclaimed the advocate, can you not guess the Englishman exists only in our friend's imagination? He would never enter an appearance, and we would have the snuff-box for nothing. Do not trust the abbey, my dear. He is a great cheat. I had no idea, answered his wife, looking at me, that the world contained rogues of this species. I affected a melancholy air, and said that I only wished myself rich enough to be often guilty of such cheating. When a man is in love, very little is enough to throw him into despair, and as little to enhance his joy to the utmost. There was but one bed in the room where supper had been served, and another in a small closet leading out of the room, but without a door. The ladies chose the closet, and the advocate retired to rest before me. I bid the ladies good night as soon as they had gone to bed. I looked at my dear mistress, and after undressing myself I went to bed, intending not to sleep through the night. But the reader may imagine my rage when I found, as I got into the bed, that it creaked loud enough to wake the dead. I waited, however, quite motionless until my companion should be fast asleep, and as soon as his snoring told me that he was entirely under the influence of Morpheus, I tried to slip out of the bed. But the infernal creaking which took place whenever I moved woke my companion, who felt about with his hand, and, finding me near him, went to sleep again. Half an hour after, I tried a second time, but with the same result. I had to give up in despair. Love is the most cunning of gods. In the midst of obstacles he seems to be in his own element. But as his very existence depends upon the enjoyment of those who ardently worship him, the shrewd, all-seeing, little blind god contrives to bring success out of the most desperate case. I had given up all hope for the night, and had nearly gone to sleep, when suddenly we hear a dreadful noise. Guns are fired in the street, people screaming and howling are running up and down the stairs. At last there is loud knocking at our door. The advocate, frightened out of his slumbers, asks me what it can all mean. I pretend to be very indifferent and beg to be allowed to sleep. But the ladies are trembling with fear and loudly calling for a light. I remain very quiet. The advocate jumps out of bed and runs out of the room to obtain a candle. I rise at once. I follow him to shut the door, but I slam it rather too hard. The double spring of the lock gives way, and the door cannot be reopened without the key. I approached the ladies in order to calm their anxiety, telling them that the advocate would soon return with the light, and that we should then know the cause of the tumult. But I am not losing my time, and am at work while I am speaking. I meet with very little opposition, but, leaning rather too heavily upon my fair lady, I break through the bottom of the bedstead, and we suddenly find ourselves, the two ladies and myself, all together in a heap on the floor. The advocate comes back and knocks at the door. The sister gets up. I obey the prayers of my charming friend, and, feeling my way, reach the door, and tell the advocate that I cannot open it, and that he must get the key. The two sisters are behind me. I extend my hand, but I am abruptly repulsed, and judge that I have addressed myself to the wrong quarter. I go to the other side, and there I am better received. But the husband returns. The noise of the key in the lock announces that the door is going to be opened and we return to our respective beds. The advocate hurries to the bed of the two frightened ladies, thinking of relieving their anxiety, 
but when he sees them buried in their broken-down bedstead, he bursts into a loud laugh. He tells me to come and have a look at them, but I am very modest and decline the invitation. He then tells us that the alarm has been caused by a German detachment attacking suddenly the Spanish troops in the city, and that the Spaniards are running away. In a quarter of an hour the noise has ceased, and quiet is entirely re-established. The advocate complimented me upon my coolness, got into bed again, and was soon asleep. As for me, I was careful not to close my eyes, and as soon as I saw daylight, I got up in order to perform certain ablutions and to change my shirt. It was an absolute necessity. I returned for breakfast, and while we were drinking the delicious coffee which Donna Lucrezia had made, as I thought better than ever, I remarked that her sister frowned on me. But how little I cared for her anger when I saw the cheerful, happy countenance and the approving looks of my adored Lucretta. I felt a delightful sensation run through the whole of my body. End of chapter 9, part 1 Recording by Stephanie Dupal de Martin